Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we started a series on Exodus, so we should probably continue that. Exodus is all about coming out and uh, being separate. Uh, Of course, the uh, Israelites who were in the bondage of Egypt at that particular time, and uh, they were coming out of that bondage. That's what Moses was going to do, is set the captive free. That was his mission given to him by God, by somebody that eventually was known as Yahweh. Now, basically, God is the creator of the universe. He's the divine intelligent. He is the one who is the source of divine will, uh, divine will, right reason. Uh, the law of nature are convertible phrases. And so when Jefferson is talking about the law of nature and nature's God. He's talking about Yahweh. He doesn't use the word Yahweh there, but I'm sure he was familiar with it because uh, he was a great student of the Bible. And so when you look at the Declaration of Independence and they're talking about uh, the law of nature and nature's God, they're talking about Yahweh. They're talking about the God of creation, the person who wrote the law of nature. Now, of course, he didn't write it down in a book. He wrote it in the very essence of nature itself. And those people who are a part of or trying to become a part of right reason see that law of nature uh, and nature's God as right reason. And so they were trying to reason their way to right reason. They were trying to figure out what right reason is uh, with their minds. But I don't believe they were using just their minds. They wouldn't have had such success if they were just using their minds, although many of them were quite intelligent people. But your mind is also equated in biblical scripture with the tree of knowledge. There are these two trees somewhere in this guarded place that we translate as a garden because the word for garden is guarded place. And one of those trees is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the other one is the tree of life, which shows us what good and evil is, what right and wrong is, what we should do and what we should not do. We were to eat of the tree of life not of the tree of knowledge. And uh, in a number of programs we talk about uh, uh, what other scientists are saying, that uh, you cannot figure out what nature is really all about because it's such a complex puzzle, uh, simply with your mind, that you have to depend on, you know, one scientist calls resonance uh, of your mind, uh, another one calls revelation, another one calls intuition. And, you know, they got all different, different labels they put on it. But some source that you find deep within yourself that kind of just inspires you, tells you, oh, well, here's the answer right here. Why didn't I see this? Uh, it seems so obvious. And then they try to tell somebody else, like Einstein trying to tell his theory of relativity and and nobody knows, what is he talking about? <laughs> 
And so he actually goes back and studies math more. He wasn't really good at math when he first started learning it. And he studied math and then came back and gave them equations like E equals MC squared, which is not 100% accurate, but it's a, it's a quantified expression of the law of nature in a mathematical formula. And he had other formulas that he came up with. And, and other people came up with formulas about gravity and what have you. And they all have a certain truth to them. But they, by the very nature of a formula, is you're reducing a gigantic complex puzzle down into a brief mathematical statement. Well, of course, in the Bible, we have lots of instances where they take complicated elements of creation and reduce it down to simple words and phrases. And then people repeat those words and phrases and they don't understand the complicated. They weren't inspired. They read it in a book and they've come up with an ideology or a uh, eschatology or some sort of thing that they believe in and they recite those words over and over again. <laughs> As if the words themselves are the answer. Like the formula itself makes E equals MC squared. No, that's just a way of expressing it. And of course the Bible is full of such metaphors and allegories and, and stories and words and phrases that are trying to tell us something. But if we only access those scriptures with the knowledge in our head, then we're accessing, we're trying to find the safe place, <laughs> the the guarded place of the garden, or return to the kingdom of God using the tree of knowledge. And you really can't do that. So then why do I tell you all these things about the book of Exodus and, and Corinthians and and Romans and all about languages like Greek and Hebrew and and why do I give you all this information? Am I not plucking that information from the tree of knowledge? Well, actually what it is is I'm shaking the branches in the tree of knowledge in hopes that you come down out of the tree of knowledge and get over there where you should be and eat from the tree of life and use that as the source of what you know to be true. And so, you know, that's a little story there, you know, with oh, laced with all these metaphors like tree of knowledge and tree of life and, and uh, revelation and inspiration and intuition and reason. You know, reason is theoretically what you think in your head, how you figure things out. And, uh, uh, that that varies from individual to individual. But the principle is the same. Either you're depending upon the tree of life or the tree of knowledge. And of course, if you're dependent upon the tree of knowledge, you're going to become captive to the tree of knowledge. And whoever controls the knowledge that you have, that's why education is so important. If they limit your knowledge, if they only give you certain knowledge, if they tell you lies and say that this is knowledge and confirm that with a diploma, you get a diploma that says that you have knowledge now, 
that you know what you're talking about because you have a I know what I'm talking about diploma. You'll go out in the world thinking you actually know what you're talking about because everybody says you know what you're talking about. Then you'll come face to face with the rest of the world and somebody's going to tell you you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But anyway... Ultimately, this is an individual journey to find the pieces of the puzzle and put them together in your own heart and mind. You're going to need the Holy Spirit, this tree of life, this divine revelation to help you put those pieces in place. And I'm the guy sitting there looking over your shoulder and saying, that doesn't go there. <laughs> you, you got that piece in the wrong place. Uh, the, the, these pieces over here actually go over here. <laughs> If you're going to get the picture, the big picture. And I, I am a, you know, if you've already assumed that you got the pieces of the puzzle in the right place, that's a delusion because you don't. You know, I don't know about you personally, but a lot of people do not have the pieces in the right place. And this morning, uh, right away, I, I, I checked my phone and, and somebody I know just posted something and uh, I saw it for a minute and I went and looked at our articles on the same subject and and thought about how I could change them and I, you know, typed out something uh, and then I had to get going and get to work. But uh, what they what they said is uh, church is not a thing to do, not a place to go, not a structure to build does not run on schedules. It requires no money. It is not a program. <laughs> this is what he's come to the conclusion. Uh, and then he says the church is daily life, a living stone with feet. It is a body. It is a light of the world, the example to follow. The power of God, its force is in the simplicity and righteousness and humility. It is the only hope on earth because its head is not man but God. Now, i known this guy for a little while and had lots of conversations with him. And this is just a series of phrases. The, each one is written as a phrase. There's no punctuation, but he, he puts them in a line like a phrase. Church, what are we doing? So as if he's addressing church, what are we doing? Why have we come so far away from the path of God? Why is man and man's wisdom so far spread in what we call church today? Well, because it's man's wisdom. <laughs> I mean, he answered his own question with the last statement he made. It's man's wisdom. It's not the wisdom of God. And if you're not listening to God, if you're not listening to the tree of life, if you're not eating from the tree of life, if you're not really listening to the Holy Spirit, you're going to come up with all kinds of answers. You're going to be climbing around in the tree of knowledge, creating all these ideologies. I actually wrote them back and used the word ideology as ideology, or actually ideology. <laughs> because that's, that's where we are. We have these ideas that we have pieces of the puzzle in the right place. So how do you know whether or not you have pieces of the puzzle in the right place? And, of course, that's the reason why we're doing this study on Exodus. 
is to know if you have the pieces of the puzzle in the right place. And in order to convince a lot of people who can hold a certain amount of information in their head at the same time, that they know what they're talking about, they often, the people often distort what the pieces are. They, they, and that's what they've done with the Old Testament. That's what the Pharisees did with the Old Testament. They twisted the meaning of words with their personal sophistry, invented a whole ideology and eschatology and interpreted, private interpretation of the Bible, got all kinds of people to follow them, uh, had their scholars and their their priests and their prophets telling them, oh, this is what Moses meant, and this is what Moses meant, and this is what Moses meant. And then Jesus Christ came along and says, you guys don't even know Moses. Because if you knew Moses, you would know me. And so now here I am, thousands of years later, coming along and hearing all kinds of people who think they are Christians saying, this is what Christ meant. This is what Christ meant. This is what the word church means. (laughs) And I have to say, uh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But that would be attacking their delusions. So what I do is write lots of articles explaining the... The inconsistencies in their ideology, you know, that that's not what it means. That's not how it works. You know, and, and some of the people who responded to him said, as many are the sons of God, they are led by the Spirit of God. Well, actually, as many, I would actually put that different. It's like almost reverse speech there. As many are led by the Spirit of God, are the sons of God. <laughs> I mean, we're all sons of God. I mean, even even uh, Satan is the son of God, but he isn't uh, a good son of God. He's abandoned God. <laughs> He's a disobedient son. He is cast out from the family of God. And so, yeah, he's the son of God, but he's not. he's not sons of God. And, of course, the Israelites all thought of themselves as the children of God. Uh, including the 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 uh, children of God who did not actually do uh, what God wanted, they thought they were sons of God. They thought they were children of God. I mean, the Pharisees were making the word of God to none effect because they didn't understand it. But they didn't understand it because they would not see it. They were blind guides. And when Christ came along and tried to show them the truth, the light, the way, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to shut him up. They wanted people to not follow him, but they couldn't stop him. So eventually they resorted to trying to kill him. But uh, that actually, they ended up playing into God's hands. I mean, from the very beginning, Jesus said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and appoint it to another who will bear fruit. Because what they were doing was not bearing fruit. It had lots of people who thought they were following Moses and lots of people who thought they were doing the right thing and lots of people who thought they were sons of God, but they were actually workers of iniquity. And the amazing thing is, Jesus says that that's what we will do. That many of us will think we're following Jesus Christ. But we're actually following our own personal ideology and our own private interpretation. And so I look at the interpretations of a lot of people and then I I show, well, you know, that 
That doesn't fit with what they're saying. That doesn't fit with what Moses said. That doesn't fit with what Jesus said. That doesn't fit with what Abraham said. And I give them intellectual evidence that they're on the wrong trail. I remember the first time I was out with a guy who was a real trapper. I mean, a professional trapper and hunter. And uh, he'd been doing it all his life. Was missing the fingers to prove it. <laughs> so, but he, we were walking in the bushes following a bobcat that had come in and eat several of my lambs. And uh, he was saying, well, look there. And I would look there. <laughs> and I said, I don't know what we're looking at. He says, well, that, it stepped there. That was the right foot right there. And you know, like usually when you see footprints, you, you see a whole print and the paws and, and the pads of the foot and everything. He didn't need to see that. He just saw a slight little disturbance in the soil that was almost unperceptible. And he would say, yeah, that is, is, it's her going this way. And, uh, you know, I, I, he showed me, he kept showing me different steps as we walked through the brush. And, and I would look down there. And sometimes I'd kind of see it. And sometimes I would have to admit I couldn't see it at all. But over the years, I've gotten a little better, and uh, I, my eyes got real bad for a while, but I can see pretty good now. And so, I could, I can actually see the prints, and and can follow them, and figure out where they're going. And also, I've learned their habits and how they operate. And you know, I can look up the side of a hill and say, well, I know where he would go up this side of the hill because I can second guess the bobcat or the coyote. And know which way he is liable to go. But that's, that comes with experience. It also comes with a lot of mistakes. And unfortunately people wandering through the scriptures have made a lot of mistakes. And they've been teaching those mistakes to other people. Another guy answered, you are the church, the body of Christ. If Christ lives in you, you are the embodiment of who he is. So, that's true. You can't argue with that statement. Everything there is true. But what do you think that means? And how do you know if Christ lives in you? Well, there's lots of things it says in the Bible that tell us this. But the same tree of life that uh, uh, and Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ talks about. And, you know, breathes on his apostles and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit's always been around. And we know that some prophets have received the Holy Spirit and the divine inspiration of God and knew the, knew what, you know, what Moses was really talking about, what Abraham was really talking about, what Yahweh was really talking about. Uh, but there's always been lots of people who don't know and and can't seem to grasp it. But that's up to the individual to grasp it. It's up to those who are prophets or those who are ministers of God, who are the sons of God, whose God dwells in them, to share what God has given them to with somebody else. This is the nature of life. If we're going to look at the law of nature, you know, a husband and wife have a child and they take their life and pour it out into that child. They feed it. They clothe it. They care for it. They work hopefully as a team in this process. 
and eventually raise that child up to be the next generation. And this is, because the kingdom of God, as it says in the text, is from generation to generation. And so just as you you receive life and food, you know, and you end up having to take care of your parents and provide them with food and care when they become old, that's why, you know, you honor, you fatten your mother and your father so that your days will be long upon the land because your own children will see you doing that and they will do the same. Well, it's the same way with the truth. When you get pieces of the truth, we we do these these uh, radio broadcasts and, and podcasts and guests on other people's show and make recordings of them. And we share them with the ministers throughout the network of the church. There's a network of the church. But that network is, it, we put it together with the email networks, but then the people have to organize themselves. They have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But the email networks allow you, just like the telephone can allow you, to make those connections and sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which the early church did because Christ commanded that his ministers teach the people to do that. And we know that the Israelites, when they exited uh Egypt, they had ended up organizing themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. This actually became a part of their cities of refuge, their court system. But they had a way of taking care of one another through this network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. They were organized before they even left in that. Because that's how they took care of one another when there was no stimulus packages coming from the pharaoh when he wasn't going to provide them with daily bread anymore. He wasn't even going to provide them with straw. But they still had to pay their tally of bricks, which is a part of the, the rigors that they would be putting on them, which we will get to as we get to those different parts in Exodus. We're up to Exodus 3 now. And we're going to be putting the audios that we do on Exodus 1 and Exodus 2 on those pages and then et cetera, et cetera, so that you can listen to them. So even though I seem to be off on another one of my tangents, I'm walking around the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that everybody today who think they are Christians, think they are sons of God, have actually returned to the bondage of Egypt. And that's what we saw from the first, you know, even back when we were studying Genesis, that the people went into the bondage in Egypt to the Pharaoh and now owed 20% of their labor to the government of Pharaoh. They had to give 20% of their labor to the government of Pharaoh. Even the people in Egypt, after the famine, they had to do the same. They didn't have to before that famine, but after that famine... They had to do that. And that was the bondage of Egypt. But as we see in Exodus 1 and 2, that that bondage became more rigorous. There were more taskmasters hired to make sure that everybody gave their fair share. And their fair share evidently increased. Somehow or other, it increased over time to what some say a crafts of state where it became so burdensome they were actually aborting their children, specifically their male children they were casting out. But now they were going to come out. And that's what we're going to talk about when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. 
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so we're going to be talking about this exodus. And we will revisit that idea of what the church is and what the church is not. And it's amazing because I, I've talked to that individual who was, gave all these words and phrases about the church. And then I listened to all the comments that were below that. And uh, it's just shocking to me because he should know better by now. We've had lots of conversations. The 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 word church... In the Greek is ekklesia. And the word ekklesia does not mean assembly. Although it is an assembly. It's not the Greek word for assembly. There's lots of Greek words that can mean assembly. And can be a translated assembly. But ekklesia is a very specific word. It's a very specific government word. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before and after the Gospels were written. Ecclesia was the called out, called out for the purposes of government to to do certain things and not do certain things. Now, some ecclesias could do things like declare war. You know, that's that's the guys who declared war in, in some governments. But, of course, we weren't given that power by Jesus. When he appointed his ecclesia, he called out a group of men. He called it his little flock, his church. And it talks about building his church. It's the men he called out. They were to be in the world, but not of the world. And they were, to, and he explained how they were to do things. And one of the things they were to not do is to exercise authority one over the other. So any anytime you see people exercising authority one over the other, you know that's not the church. <laughs> so because they were. Jesus said we weren't to be that way. And we certainly to do that in order to obtain benefits. We were not to exercise authority one over the other. And this is a common thing that you're going to see in throughout Exodus. Is that Moses is dealing with this thing where he's trying to show people how to be a free people under God. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's It's not... The kingdom of God is not people in bondage in Egypt. It's not people who are merchandise, literally human resources of a government. Where the government owns them and owns their children and owns their land. No. The purpose of the Messiah was to return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. In order to do that and stay in that condition... You need to be seeking the kingdom of God, the government of God, the way of God and his righteousness. So if you're not doing things righteously, you're not in the kingdom of God and you're not doing the will of God and you're not following the law of nature and you're not conducting yourself according to right reason. You're just making it up as you go along. And you need to repent of that if you want to be free souls under God. Because that's where the kingdom of God is. That's where you become free souls under God. And that's a process, just as the process of the Israelites going into bondage brought them into bondage. First they had to throw their brother into bondage. And then sell him off into bondage. And then forget all about it and lie about it to themselves and to their uh the own father. You know, I mean, like, that must have been an interesting day. When he finds out his son is not dead. <laughs> he didn't get eaten by wild beasts. 
but his brothers sold him into slavery for the last uh, decades. And but I don't know. Uh, he, he had to deal with some serious family issues there. But they went into bondage. Of course, it saved their life that they went into bondage. Of course, if they hadn't have thrown their brother into bondage, doesn't mean that they couldn't have saved their life then, too. Because he could have said, you know, there's a great famine coming to his brothers. And the brothers could have worked and all the people of the world would have come to them. Because <laughs> they could have stockpiled grain for seven years. But... That it wasn't the way it happened. They sold their brother into bondage and they themselves went into bondage. And that law of nature still applies. As you judge, so shall ye be judged. As you do unto others, so shall it be done unto you. So Moses now, he was in Egypt. They were casting out their children. His parents took a risk and saved his life and evidently, in my opinion, must have been following the Holy Spirit to know that if I wrap my kid up in this basket and send him to float there, that the uh, somehow good will come of it and certainly did that the daughter of the Pharaoh took him in and actually paid his mom a wage to nurse her own child. And so that by that... She she was probably lifted off of a burden of a great deal of labor taxes because she was now getting paid by the queen to raise her own child. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> kind of a godsend stimulus package. I mentioned stimulus package twice now. I have an actual article up called Stimulus. I revisited that because some people were looking at that again. And so if you go to preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org, uh, you can find a lot of these articles. That particular one is at preparingyou.com along with hundreds and hundreds of others and audios. But anyway, let's get right into this uh, Bernie Bush section of Exodus 3. And now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Horeb is actually a Hebrew word that means desolate place. And, uh, and so that's, it, it, this is a pretty, pretty desolate place. He's taken the flock to this desolate place. Now, I don't know why he particularly took it there, but evidently the flock's doing okay. But the interesting thing to me, of course, is that he was a shepherd of flocks. And David was a shepherd of flocks. Shepherds of flocks plays in a very important role a lot of times in the biblical stories. Because there are certain lessons you learn in being a shepherd of flocks. And of course, I'm a shepherd of flocks. I, I wasn't raised that way. But when I was seven years old, I was maybe inspired. I don't know where the idea came from that I wanted to raise sheep. Actually, on the desert. And here I am, uh, almost three quarters of a century later, and I'm raising sheep on the desert. In a place that sometimes looks like Horab, a rather desolate place. It's way out away from most other people. But I do recognize now, I go back and read 
you know, Psalms 23, and it means a whole different thing to me. Of course, I've also done the research as to, you know, where exactly is the valley of the shadow of death? Because <laughs> that's actually a location. But what does that mean? Because it isn't about locations. It's like Horeb. It doesn't, it's not about the Horeb. They're talking about came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And so he's learning things. And, and there's a lot of soul searching going on as he works for the priest of Midian. What the heck was, what's the priest of Midian do? Well, that's another subject. We can, you know, maybe I'll put a link there on the page at Preparing You so that you can go find out what is a priest. Because what they tell you today, that that piece of the puzzle doesn't fit. You don't under, understand what a priest does. Most people I, I talk to who don't understand what the word church means also don't understand what a priest is. But in this very next verse, we hear something interesting. A lot of people will be shocked at it. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Now, we can look at each one of those those words, bush, etc., but there's, like I said before, that there was a phenomenon that took place in some of these desolate places of the desert, that bushes, and this still goes on today, during really dry periods of time, uh, where a bush will literally spontaneously combust. It will just catch on fire all by itself. And usually in the evening when the sun's going down, you think, well, then the hot part of the day. No, actually it often happens in the evening where all of a sudden a bush just flames up. It has to do with greases and and all that stuff. It's a spontaneous combustion of the bush, and the bush just burns up. Now, the roots are okay, and the bush may come back. It's kind of a way of nature replenishing itself. But uh, this is Moses is sitting out there at night watching the flocks, and he sees a bush on fire, burning up. He's seen it before. It's not a big thing. But the important thing is he says... And the bush was not consumed. It kept burning. He kept seeing this burning bush out there on the the desert. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt, meaning not burnt up. And so he's going to go out to this bush, cross out over the desert, and go to this place where there's this He sees this light out there, this burning bush, and he's going to go out to it. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, he actually decided to go to the light (laughs) instead of run from the light, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He didn't, you know, he didn't run away. But is it really a burning bush? Well, we're led to believe that by the words that we're reading. And we can go into the detail of the Hebrew and look for extra letters and what they might be saying. 
But for some reason or other, something that he thought was a burning bush did not burn up. It continued to glow out there, and he decided to go out to it. And when he came, because he was trying to find out what this was, that's the nature of Moses. Which, if Moses is the guy I think he is, he was just this super genius guy who knew all kinds of things about astronomy, about uh, architecture, about military tactics, but we talked about that before, who he might really be in history. Because I believe that he, his name wasn't always Moses, uh, but he was called Moses for a reason. And the Israelites even say, we call him Moses because he was drawn from the water. But uh, he may have had another name. That would be common to have another name. But anyway, we'll deal with that else in other places. And we do uh, in the articles that you can see I'm preparing you. But in verse 5 he says, and he said, draw not nigh hither. This is the voice that he's hearing. This voice of what it says is God. Draw not nigh hither, but off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. So he was ta- he was grounding himself. He was going to be barefoot. <laughs> he was going to walk on this ground, grounded. And so that he was not insulated from the ground. And continued to approach this light on the desert. And hear what the voice that is coming out of this light on the desert has to say. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So, this is where where it brings us to, is that he's before this light. And there's a voice coming to him saying that he's the God of his ancestors, which is a common thought and and theme throughout history. And it goes on to say in verse 7, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, which sounds like a pretty good place. Because if you're in that dry desert, your your livestock is not going to produce as much milk and they're not going to get as fat and they're not going to be as healthy and they're not going to be as productive. They're not going to live as long because life's hard. But it's also hard in Egypt. Unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites. Now, the land of the Hittites, it it went way up north. And some of these other tribes were spread out all over. They weren't just in Israel. But it's all kinds of people over a, a broad range of area. But he's going to bring them up to this large land. Now, he doesn't go into a lot of detail why and what, but we will see that as we progress. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel 
is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. So this oppression, remember when we talked in the earlier chapters, the Egyptians were putting all these burdens on the Israelites because the Israelites are becoming so strong and vigorous and, and numerous that they put these oppressions on them to weaken them. But it actually made them stronger. While the Egyptian people were becoming weaker and weaker. What was weakening the Egyptian people? And why did oppression make the Israelites stronger? Well, even a weightlifter knows that. <laughs> if you're going to stick with the three-pound weights, you're not going to get very strong. It's when you start picking up the 10-pound and 20-pound and 50-pound and 100-pound weights that you get stronger. That's nature. And the more they oppressed them, the stronger they got. But still, God did not want them to be in this oppression state. He wanted to relieve them of that oppression. And, of course, he's going to do it by taking them out to a desolate place, a hard place. But they were going to learn lessons in the difficulties that came. And that's the thing that you need to ask yourself you you may look out in the world today and see the news. I looked at the, some of the news items today. It looks like we're headed for hard times. Elon Musk is talking about economic crisis. Other people are talking about it for a long time. We've been talking about and telling you why it's coming about. Well, it's coming about for the same reason that you have gone into the bondage of Egypt, where you no longer own 100% of your labor. Somebody else owns it. They take from it. They borrow against your labor, against the labor of your children. And it's all because of your covetous practice. And of course, they they went into the bondage of Egypt because of their covetous practices. They coveted the coat of many colors of their brother. and The position of their brother. And they threw him into bondage. And we have people all uh, today wanting, you know, let's tax the rich. And, and they think anybody who's got more money than them is the rich. You know, let's tax the middle class because the rich never get taxed. They can hire lawyers and accountants. Uh, so, I mean, every time I've seen in countries where they raise the taxes on the rich, the rich the next year paid less taxes because <laughs> the rich can buy politicians from the House of Parliament to Congress. And so the, in these thousand-page laws... They put in the loopholes because they don't want to pay taxes. And the rich guys who send them millions of dollars don't want to pay taxes. And so the rich don't pay more taxes. Although in America, the rich pay a lot of taxes. But even if you took all the money of the rich, 100% of all the money of the rich, you still couldn't pay the debt that you've done because you haven't been keeping the commandments. You certainly aren't keeping the Sabbath. You're not working first and you're earning what you get. You're, you're borrowing against the future. So we know you're not a Sabbath keeper. Because Sabbath is not a day, it's a way. But anyway, we've talked about that. You can look up Sabbath at preparing you. So we're at this point where the children of Israel are crying out. I put several links on just before the show. of, And I will put more on of articles we have about crying out. You know, uh, 1 Samuel 8, 18 
says, and ye shall cry out in that day because of the king which ye, ha- ye shall have chosen you for yourself, using the tree of knowledge and being slothful in the ways of God. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. But now there's, the Lord's starting to hear them. So what, what has taken place? In Second Corinthians 6.17 we see, Wherefore come out from amongst them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean things, uh, and I will receive you. So that's what we're going to see taking place in the chapters to come, is that they're, they're not going to touch the unclean things, because the unclean things aren't going to be given to them anymore. <laughs> Uh, they're going to get less and less of the benefits of the Pharaoh's government, but they're going to have all the same taxes. So this is, this is where they're going. This, this, uh, because of the taskmasters, uh, you know, he says, I know their sorrows. But they have those taskmasters because they did not follow the way of God. Even when they were in bondage, they didn't follow the way of God. And this is one of the things we'll see eventually in Daniel is that some of the people in Daniel, they were in bondage. They paid their tally of bricks. They paid the denarii that they owed Caesar. But they served God, even while they were in bondage. And, of course, this is what we're going to see the Israelites doing, which is part of the lessons they need to learn in order to come out of that bondage. So the the cries of the children of Israel has come up and now the God of Abraham and the God of uh th- these other Isaac and uh, is there to help lead them out and they're going to use Moses. He says, "Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel." Out of Egypt. And of course he won't just bring Israelites out. They will, they will bring a mixed multitude out because the children of Israel, the children of God are those who have the faith of Abraham. And those who want to walk in the ways of faith rather than walk in the ways of Pharaoh, which is the way of force. And Moses said unto, uh, God, who am I that I should go unto the Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he says in verse 12, And he said, Certainly, I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain which was what Horeb no it was the mountain of God so we have to figure out what the mountain of God is because we're supposed to be serving God on the mountain of God too and we have to figure out what serving is we have to also figure out what worship is because you know when he says this in verse 12 he says that you're supposed to serve God what was the word that he used in the Hebrew, to describe serving God. It's actually the word Abad. Was it just the letters of Abad, or was it more than the letters of Abad, when he says to serve God? 
Well, we'll have to talk about that at another time in order to get through this. But um, this a word serve actually means to keep in bondage, to be a bondsman, to be a, a servant. Um, so we were supposed to be bondsmen to God. We're supposed to serve God. You know, worship is a word that actually means to serve as well. And Paul talked about himself being a bondservant of God. And of course, Moses has been living with the priests of Midian. And so he kind of understands some of these things a lot better than most of us today. But in verse 13 we see, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And of course he says, I am that I am. And that's where we get the word Yahweh. But we'll have to talk about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after this brief break. So come right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're looking at this chapter 3 of Exodus and we're seeing that Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And so we have this idea of name, and our view of the word name has changed over the centuries. I'll put a link in there to our own article on this idea of name. But uh, there's particular Hebrew letters that we'll see here in this, uh, where he's talking about this word that we see Yahweh and we say well that's God's name and and I want to know is that on God's birth certificate is that how you know that's his name <laughs> is it is it on his ID card no the words are symbols of ideas and just like the the word that they have for the word name is a symbol of the idea of what a word means name it means it's it's something about the person. People are named by some characteristic of them or events of their lives or whatever. I mean, Moses was called Moses because he was drawn from the water. But he could have been called Moses because he was the rightful pharaoh of Egypt. Because at that particular time, that's what most of the pharaohs were called, was Moses. And so, we see in this, he says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And in the King James, they capitalize all those letters. I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, hath sent me unto you. So, what does that mean? Should we call God Yahweh, as in the Yadhi Vahe, 
letters that they call the tetrahedrogram, uh, or should we call him I am that I am, or call him the I am, that's the name of God, or what? What is, what is name? Again, words are the symbols of ideas, and in the Hebrew language, letters are the symbol of ideas, and they take letters that have a meaning to them and put them together to make a word, like we saw back there in verse 12, where he said, certainly I will be with thee. So God's going to be with him, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee, when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon the mountain. And like I said, the word there that they have, serve God, is Abad. Except for in the text, it doesn't appear as Abad. Abad is Aon Beit Delet. That's, that's what, and, and the essence of that word actually just means work. It's often associated with bondage because people have a tendency to go back into bondage because <laughs> they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. God doesn't want you in bondage. Even Jesus, when they talk about being servants to Jesus, Jesus says, I want you as brothers. I want, I want us to be the family of God, the sons of God, all of us together. But the word abad that we see there in the text, in the actual Hebrew text, is not aon be it deleth, although aon be it deleth are the letters that we find in that location. It begins with the word, the letter tav. And of course, those who listen regularly know that tav is the letter of faith. So it's not just serving, but serving through faith. And behind that uh, Tav, Aon, Beit, Deleth. There are two more letters in the same word. <laughs> so they've added three letters to a three-letter word. And the other letters are Vav, Nun. So there's Vav, Nun. And Nun has to do with the fish flowing, uh, you know, swimming in the water. And Tav actually has something to do with water. But they actually have two more letters in the same text, which they don't translate, which is Elif Tov. So it's actually, if if you look in the text, it's Tov, Aon, Beit, Deleth, Vav, Nun, Elif, Tov. Elif stands for the relationship of God and man. Tov, again, stands for faith. So that's the actual letters that we see there that are translated serve. And then... The, the next word is serve God. And the, the word they have there in the Hebrew is Elohim. You can go study that at preparing you. But it has an additional letter as well. It has, well, actually at the end it has Yod Mim on it. Mim, again, is that word for flow and water. And, of course, uh, it says on, on the mountain, Harar. They're trying to tell you a message. They're trying to tell you how... You are to serve. You're supposed to serve by faith. Not by rigor, not by taskmasters, but by faith. And that's, that's how you're gonna know that they're following the ways of God and the way of Yahweh is that they're serving by faith. So that they may pay in 20% of their labor to the purposes of God and the purposes of God is life to, uh, on this planet. They they may 
use it for dressing and keeping the planet, for taking care of one another, uh, remaining free souls under God. But it's their choice how they do that. And hopefully, and, and essentially, they have to make that choice based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of people that think that they're being led by the Holy Spirit, but they're actually led by their own vain imaginations. And you know this, or you it will become evident as you see where they're leading everybody and where they themselves are going. And we have all these parameters that we're going to look at, you know, that that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. And we're going to say, so how do we get on the right path to follow the ways of God? Because this is what the Israelites are going to be doing while they leave Egypt. But before they leave Egypt, they're going to have to learn a few lessons. But as they go out to learn these lessons, they will be traveling through the desert. And the journey is where they discover the truth. By making the journey, they discover the truth more and more. Everybody doesn't, but that's part of the journey. And that's why I often say the journey is the destination. So if you're going to, and this is why Christ starts off with instructions like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, it's not righteous to take from your neighbor. It's not righteous to borrow against the future. It's not righteous to throw your brother into a pit of bondage so that you can have free stuff. And uh, to run debts up for your children so that you can have a fun life today. But your children will be working forever, serving the gods of your debt. So you see in verse 15, And God said, Moreover, unto Moses shalt thou say, Unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. Now, if you reduce this message down to the letters yad heh as his name, you're probably not going to understand what he's saying. Because you, what you're doing is you're unmooring the meaning from the message. And then once you do that, the tree of knowledge will take you almost anywhere. You could be killing one another. You could be oppressing one another. You could be worse than the taskmasters of Egypt. But you you do not want to unmoor the meaning of what the the scripture is saying which we saw with the guy who all of a sudden says the church is all these other things. and But he doesn't say the church is the called out. That's why they have the phrase talking about the Levites who were the called out in the wilderness. It's because that's what they were. They were called out. They were called out in the wilderness. The church is the ecclesia. Ecclesia meaning called out. But it's the ecclesia of Jesus who was the Christ, which means the anointed king. That's what Christ means, anointed. And he was the anointed king of Judea. He was the anointed king, therefore, of Israel, because Judea was the remnant of Israel that didn't say, what is David to us, and leave. Now you had a king that was, you know, not only 
repentant like uh, David. He didn't usually have anything to be repentant of because he had faced his temptations and didn't try to turn the people into bread, <laughs> etc. The ecclesia was the called out of Christ like the Levites were the called out of Moses. That's why we see the phrase church in the wilderness. And we have an article, church in the wilderness. Why did they talk about the church in the wilderness? Was that everybody in Israel that was walking out there in the desert? They were all the church in the wilderness? No, the church was the called out. And the ones who were called out were the Levites. And the the Israelites were kicked out. (laughs) They weren't called out. But together, they aren't all the church, but together they are the kingdom of God. The church is defined as one form of government. That's actually how it's legally defined today, as one form of government. But it's a government that operates on faith, hope, and charity. Not force, fear, and fealty. Not taskmasters, but bond servants who are willing to serve the people with a welfare that sets you free rather than the welfare that is a snare, like David says. What should have been for their welfare is a snare and a trap. Paul quotes David in the New Testament. And of course, what is that snare and trap? It's welfare that's provided through legal charity. I just actually heard a government official was approached by the sheriff. Uh, it was county commissioners. And there's three county commissioners in this particular county. And they were approached by the sheriff. Would they take some of the general fund? Uh, I think it was just a couple thousand dollars that he was asking for. And donate it to an event that they have every year in the county. That where they have a big feed for children all over the county who have, you know, uh, they're not, they're not really wealthy or, the, you know, they're a little poor. And so they have this kind of community feed where the people go and volunteer and, and bring food and, and volunteer and cook and, and have a big, like, Christmas dinner at the fairgrounds. And they do it every year. And, you know, it's kind of a get-together, a feast, if you will. But he asked for them to take money out of the general fund of the government, specifically a government that exercises authority. That's how they fill their treasury, (laughs) is that they tax the people. And some of that money goes into the general fund. And one of the commissioners says, I can't do that. Uh, You know, if you want me to give... I can give, but I can't take tax money and pretend that it's charity. That's not charity. And now, you know, most, I can take you all the way back in American history where that used to be common knowledge. But yet I can show you the history of how that knowledge began to change where all of a sudden legal charity, this, you know, taking tax money and pretending that it's charity when you give it away to the people in a welfare system or a Medicare system or Medicaid system or whatever. But uh, people don't usually see that and they wouldn't even make that connection. But because people have been talking about it in this county... The other commissioners agreed, and they didn't do it. They're still going to have the festival, but they're not going to take tax dollars and pretend that that is charity. And, of course, this is this is what's going on 
now amongst the Israelites or will be going on amongst the Israelites in Egypt. They're not going to get the lakes and onions, the free bread and straw of the Egyptian government. But they're going to face a famine. Now, that, which takes us back to the article I mentioned earlier in the show, the stimulus. Stimulus. You look that up at Preparing You and you can, there's audios there, there's an article there. And they talk about legal charity. Because I think that's part of what I just added to it. But the church, which is supposed to be the priests of the kingdom of God, are supposed to operate not by forcing the contributions of the people, but by faith. Which is what we see in those words. You know, that word to serve. To serve in faith. That's why they put a tov on the beginning of that word, abad. It's not just work for God, but it work for God based on faith, based on choice, based on a belief in fervent charity rather than forced charity, which is legal charity. See, if you think legal charity is okay, if you think it's okay to have men who exercise authority force your neighbor to contribute to your free welfare, your public schools, your health care, if you think that's okay, you're not a son of God. You're a son of the adversary of God. Because God wants you to live by faith. He doesn't want you to live by force. And we'll see that over and over again as an underlying theme throughout Exodus, throughout the whole Bible, throughout all the prophets of the Bible. And certainly it is the, it is the major theme of the early church. It's why they were persecuted. Because they would not sign up for the free bread of Rome because the free bread of Rome was legal charity. So, he comes in and he's supposed to tell the people that are in this bondage that the God of their fathers, Abraham, who left Ur, the God of Isaac, who lived out there in their tents and set up altars of stone, living stone, literally set up altars of living stone. I'll probably put a link in so you can find out if you don't already know what living stones are. And, and the God of Jacob. It's a guy that has these same precepts of living by faith. And a flow of faith amongst men where each individual man decides what he's going to give for the betterment of society. He decides who he's going to give it to and how much he's going to give and whether or not he's going to give next week too. He doesn't sign up to a contract where he's got taskmasters that force him to give. If you don't have that, in your society, whether you live in Australia or, or New Zealand or Sweden or Norway or wherever. If that isn't how you take care of the needy of your society, you're probably not free. And you're not following Christ. You're certainly not following Moses. You're not following Abraham because that's the way they were doing it. That's how they served their God, which was the God of nature, the God of creation. So, that tells me whether you know anything about what the church is or what the church is not. But anyway, we'll, we'll get into all the details. So, he, he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. The elders of Israel. So, 
That's who he's gathering. Not gathering everybody. He's gathering the elders of Israel. And he's going to tell them this stuff. So in, in verse 17, And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Remember how they made those taskmasters to afflict the people. Now they say, I'm going to bring you out of that affliction unto the land of the Canaans and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And they shall hearken to thy voice and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto them, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go. We beseech thee three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, they're going to go three days into the wilderness and and do the sacrifice, and then what? Come back? Well, he didn't say that. But we also find out there are more to the story as we go along. And in verse 19 he says, And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No. Not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that he will let you go. So he's giving a heads up. And this is, you know, if you don't read this part... You may not understand what, why it says later on that, you know, Moses is sent there to get, say, let my people go. He goes and does that, but then God hardens the heart of the Pharaoh. And so the Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let you go. But here he's giving you a heads up that he's going to say that I'm not going to let you go, but then I'm going to smite Egypt. And he is going to have to let you go. Well, now if you go and study the Arad and the and the, the laws of Egypt, you start to realize that there was a certain amount of freedom of religion in Egypt. And you had a right to go out and serve your other God, to sacrifice to your other God. Now, you still had to do your, you pay your tally of bricks, but you could also take a portion of your labor and give it to whatever priest you wanted. And he wanted to go out and and serve God. I mean, no, nobody goes out to the desert and takes their money or their sheep and throw it up into the air so that God grabs it. And then that's how you give it to God. You give it to God by using those funds to serve one another. And if you don't understand that, then you probably need to read the articles on altars. Altars of clay and stone. Because from the very beginning, these altars were ways in which, once you understand the symbolism of the the letters and the words, there are ways in which you take care of one another. Because God will take care of you if you take care of your brother. But if you throw your brother into bondage, you will go into bondage. Because as God will judge as you judge. So if you want to buy your brother out of bondage, if you want to take care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity, God's going to be charitable with you. If you want to take care of one another through force, fear, and violence, that's what you should expect is going to happen with you. It's built into the law of nature, which was built by God, that as you judge, so shall you be judged. So now you go back to that original definition of charity that that individual was giving and you say, well, how are you taking care? What is your pure religion? Religion is how you take care of the needy of society. So 
how are you practicing pure religion? Are you taking care of the needy of society with the church that you're defining for us on Facebook? Or does somebody else take care of all the needs of society? Somebody who exercises authority like Pharaoh, like Caesar, like Nimrod, like FDR, <laughs> LBJ, Obama? I mean, how are you taking care of the needy in your church? So anyway, verse 21. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. In the sight of the Egyptians, when the Egyptians get smited, the Israelites are going to come out on top. They're going to do okay. They're going to be, they're going to have some sort of immunity to whatever plague is coming. We haven't seen the real plague yet. It's coming, though. We've talked about that on other shows. Uh, but you can have immunity to that plague. And that plague's going to come diversely, not just disease, because the, the plagues of Egypt were not just disease. It was famine. It was all kinds of problems. And we're going to see all kinds of problems. Just like Rome saw all kinds of problems after Christ. And early Christians were somewhat immune to that. They actually not only survived the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, they thrived during it. Because they were doing something completely different than what that individual this morning was talking about when he was trying to define what he thinks church is. It doesn't matter what I think it is. It doesn't matter what you think it is. It matters what Christ thinks it is. Well, Moses and Christ were in agreement. And it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. So he's saying that they're going to show, be shown favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. And that when they leave, that the Egyptians are going to give them gifts. Even when you read Philos. Uh, he talks about this. He talks about that they were given the possession of gifts. Gold and silver and other things. To take with them. Gold and silver. Gold especially. Is portable land. It's portable wealth. I mean you can carry. You know. 20 ounces of gold. And buy. Hundreds of pounds. Of food. With it. You can't carry all that food. But if you have that gold. You can buy food where you go. It, it is portable wealth. And God wants you to have it in your pocket. Of course, you don't have it in your pocket anymore. You cast it into the city. Into the streets of the city. And there's prophecies about that. But you going out and getting gold now is not... What you have to get is the wisdom of God now. And this is what the Israelites are going to start to learn. How to get the wisdom of God. How to follow the wisdom of God. Verse 22, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor. Now we see that word borrow, we could maybe revisit that. And of her sojourner in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters. And ye shall spoil the Egyptians. And now when they say borrow, again, we'll, we'll revisit that. But right now we're going to go to another break. But start thinking about, are you in the bondage of Egypt? What could you do to be liberated from the bondage of Egypt? And is does it conform to the patterns that we see in the puzzle 
that we find revealed in the scriptures. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're looking at this Exodus uh, chapter 3. And I said we'd revisit it. Might as well do it right now. Uh, it's always borrowed me, uh, bothered me when I, I read, uh, Exodus 3.22 way, way back, you know, uh, more than half a century ago, uh, in the seminary. And it said borrowed. I remember even asking the, uh, theologian, uh, that was supposedly teaching us, uh, if they borrowed it, don't they have to pay it back? <laughs> and, you know, it, it's funny, this particular word that we see translated borrow, uh, the actual word is, uh, if I can remember the uh, actual letters uh, of, of the word, uh, it's a shin, elif lamad, I think it is. It's not just shin elif lamad there. Vav, Shin, Elif, Lamad, Hey. But that really doesn't give you insight into what's going on there as much as the other words that are in the sentence. If you, if you read the sentence just literally, uh, it'd be, but shall ask. That's really what the, the word there means. The word that they say means borrow actually means to ask. It actually, it, the root word means to inquire. To ask of them. You know, can you, will you give me stuff? It doesn't mean force them to give you. It doesn't mean you're borrowing and have to, that I'll, I'll pay this back with interest or, or any of that stuff that we would think when we use the word borrow. You, you ask of, and actually the, the literal word there is every woman. But shall ask every woman of her neighbor. But even the word neighbor there uh, is not just the word neighbor. The word neighbor there, or it could actually mean inhabitant of that location of Egypt or a neighbor of that. And it, it would almost sound like the, the, the word shaken because it's composed of shin, kuf, nun. That's normally what, the way the word would appear. If it was written in the text. But that's not what we see written in the text. If you actually look at the original text. It's. Mem shen kuf nun. Tav. Hey. So again there's that letter tav in there. That letter of faith. So you're, you're asking of your neighbor. In faith. To give you stuff. And. Uh. And it goes on literally to say, and any woman staying in her house. So that these are the people that stay behind. You're to ask them of them these gifts. And again, there's another word with lots of extra letters. And one of those extra letters is the Tav again. Even in the word in her house, which normally house is this be it. But we don't just see this bit. We see bit, yad, tav, hey. 
So, in all the words there in a row, we're seeing this Tav showing up over and over again in this message to inquire of your neighbor that's staying behind to receive gold and clothing and valuables. And you're going to be able to take them with you on your your journey. Even the, even the word clothing uh, begins with Vav and ends with Tav again. Uh, and and you shall put them on, it says. And what word is there there? That's actually, again, has the word Tav in it. The letter Tav added to it. <laughs> this is all about... A faith. They're they're now stepping out in faith, and they're going to be given this uh, plunder. You know what they call plunder in um, or, or spoil is what we see in the King James translation. They're they're going to receive this this plunder, and, and the word for this plunder is normally uh, nun uh, zedek. Lamad. But when we look in the actual text of this idea of plunder, we see Vav Nun Zedek Lamad Tav Mim. <laughs> Followed by another word that is not translated, which is Elif Tav again, like we saw up above. So Elif again is the relationship of, of God and man. And Tov is this word for this letter for faith. So it just lays throughout it this idea of a faithful action of stepping out and being given these gifts, which God is predicting they they will get it uh, way back when He's first talking to Moses here in in Exodus three. So we're seeing a process going on here. That he's telling you that it's going to take place. And of course we see it taking place. And of course Moses is writing this at a time where he already knows what is taking place. And he's hitting the highlight. We don't know if other things were said at the time that Moses had this conversation. We know of Moses' account of it. What he thought was important to write down in the book of Exodus as a part of the Pentateuch. And that we know that eventually... He's going to have trouble where the people take all this gold and silver that they're given and put into a golden calf, which is literally a central bank, a reserve fund, and a way of binding the people together because you don't have independent wealth again. You only have all your wealth in this golden calf. And so now you have to stay and defend that golden calf because everybody's in this together because their wealth is in this together. But that's not how Moses wants you to be. That's not how God wants you to be. Because they know that that is not strong enough to get you to bind yourself together as a nation. He doesn't want you to bind yourself with covenants and contracts and constitutions. He doesn't want you to bind yourself with a common one purse. He says the one purse runs towards death. That's what we see in Proverbs. He doesn't want you to have a golden calf, which is literally a reserve bank and all the Rome uh, all the Greek city states that had these big golden statues those those statues were their reserve fund and he doesn't want you he wants you to have the bonds that 
the social bonds that come with acting virtuous amongst one another, where you start taking care of one another in faith, choosing to love one another. The same word in the New Testament for charity is the same word for love. It's translated love sometimes. It's translated charity sometimes. Mostly love when Christ says it. Mostly charity when Paul says it. But it means the same thing. It's this sacrifice. The same as I was talking about husband and wives sacrificing for their children to bring about the second generation. The next generation. And that's what the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. And for those generations to be strong and come about from time to time, the burden that we are to carry is to take care of our children. If we take that burden of taking care of our children, educating our children, and give it to somebody else, give them that burden and say, you do this, then they're liable to learn CRT and not real history and all kinds of stuff. And they're not going to know what the gospel of the kingdom is really all about, which is to set you free. Because you didn't sacrifice to take care of your children, to educate your children. You went to men who exercise authority, who tax your neighbor and force your neighbor to contribute to provide you with education. You cannot become free under such a condition. You you will not enter into the kingdom of God under such a condition. Now, I don't want to create a formula where, you, oh, well, we have to homeschool, we have to do this. But I want everybody to consider that. You, what you have to do is listen to the Holy Spirit. When we get into Exodus 4, that begins with the Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto me, uh, to my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? (laughs) And he said, "Uh, uh, uh, A rod. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, we'll get into that when we do Exodus 4. But uh, he was going to give them signs. But Jesus said, Blessed are those who believe not by signs. Now, Jesus was giving signs, healing people, curing people. And and they had those signs. But Jesus says, blessed are those who believe without the signs. Because they believe because they're connecting with the Holy Spirit. So anyway, I started out talking about the church. And we talked a little bit about Exodus. And we will see how the church is to operate as we see how uh, Moses operated when he comes out of Egypt and, and, and we'll bring back this common theme. But we have to make Exodus alive for you today to understand what it is. The church appointed by Jesus Christ has to become alive to you today. Well, you have to become alive to the message of Christ today. How does that translate? The church, like I said, is the ecclesia. That's the word we see. The word ecclesia means called out. It's a political organization that can have all kinds of authority in different nations uh, and all kinds of not authority in other nations. Now, does the church have any authority? It only has authority over that which is freely given to it. It does not have authority over the individual. The elders that Moses is supposed to go to. And we'll, we'll visit that idea of elders. Who are the elders? 
that's not an office of the church. It's an office of the family because we're to return every man to his family and to his possessions. But I can tell you, you're not going to be able to keep your family and your possessions if you don't actually walk in the way that Christ is going to explain to us and Moses is going to give us a glimpse of in the process of Exodus. So there's no reason to study Exodus unless we bring it into the realm of Jesus Christ and his church. We're not the church in the wilderness. We're the church established by Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to be doing? But we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God. And the church is the government of God that does not exercise authority one over the other, but the government of God that Abad serves the people in faith, in the Tav. That, and the people allow it to do it because by faith they support that church that is doing the job of taking care of the needy so that the people no longer have to go to the men who exercise authority, the governments of the Gentiles. And when we look at the Christian conflict, which you can look up that article, I'm preparing you, you will start to see that the Christians were persecuted because they would not go along with the public religion of Rome or Ephesus. And people didn't like that because they thought their public religion was a good thing. But it's a bad thing because it brings you, it makes you weaker and weaker like it was making the Egyptian people. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy, but it's going to be right. And that's what we're supposed to, it doesn't say seek the kingdom of God and easy street. It says seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Righteousness is not always that easy. So this ecclesia called out of Christ was the same as the ecclesia called out of Moses. They were going to do the same thing. They were going to build living altars as well. And this is where the Pharisees kind of fall down, but mostly our translation of the Pharisees falls down, is that they're not following the righteous ways. Jesus was the highest son of David, the rightful king of Judea. He said he would take the kingdom right away. He says, I, 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 the kingdom of God will be taken from you. He's talking to the Pharisees. And given to another group that will bear fruit. And what group was that? Well, the called out of Jesus Christ, which included the Sanhedrin of Christ, which is the 70, the apostles, the 120 in the upper room. They were appointed to become, that, that was his little flock. And they were appointed to be the servants of the people. And we see them rightly dividing the bread from house to house, uh, practicing pure religion, meaning religion not unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of government of the world, because that's what word they put there. That's the word they put there in the text is the word that means constitutional order and system of government. They didn't depend upon the legal charity of the governments of the world at all. And the governments of the world and the people of the world were jealous of the fact that their system was working better than the system of Caesar. Which is the same conflict we had with Nimrod, Cain, uh, Pharaoh. That if you give men this power 
force the contributions of the people, which Saul tried. You go read our article on King Saul. That was the foolishness of Saul. That's why his kingdom didn't stand. That's why uh, David comes into play as the king. And David was tempted to do that, force the contributions of this dog out in the desert who wasn't helping out his kingdom and his troops at all. He was gonna, I mean, they were taking sword in hand, they were going out, but his wife ran out and met them and gives a very interesting speech, which we'll have to study at another time. But, uh, these men who are called out by Jesus need to be the servants of the people so that they are actually the servants of God. If they're not gonna serve God, uh, by serving the people, they aren't the priests of God. They aren't the ministers of God. And making you feel like you've been saved, but actually delivering the people into bondage by saying it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority when Jesus said it's not to be that way with you. Any minister that says that, yeah, we, we, we can take the benefits of government. God created the governments. And, but that's, Jesus said, no, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. There's, there's governments out there that don't give any benefits. I'm not saying do away with governments. I'm saying to turn around and seek the way of God, which is the righteousness of God, which means to take care of one another with faith, which is why we see in that verse in Exodus 3.22, the letter for faith just keeps appearing in word after word after word. It's not normally in those words. Because they're telling you that this, you need to start this journey to the promised land, to this guarded place of freedom by acting in faith. Well, you're not acting in faith if you're forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. We're not to be like the governments, the rulers of the world who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. So that's, if that is the way you are, then you can pretty much guess that, well, I haven't been acting like a Christian. I may not even be a Christian. I might even be a worker of iniquity. I've been slothful in the ways of Christ. So the Pharisees had sat in the seat of Moses when Christ came there and that's why he said he was going to take the kingdom away from them because they had set up a social welfare system, a Corbin, a, a means of sacrifice where they had Gabi and Molke, tax taskmasters taking from the people. You had a lot of fish, you had to give a portion of those fish. You grew a lot of grain, you had to give a portion. You had to give a portion of your grain to the government. And they were out there pacing off the fields, counting the branches on your Cummins plants and your windowsill. They were out there taking and taking and taking and taking. They were they were literally going back into the bondage of Egypt under the sanctions of Caesar. But when the Pharisees officially stated to Pontius Pilate that they had no king but Caesar... In that moment, by the words of their own mouth, Jesus took the kingdom away from the Pharisees. 
away from those particular Jews who were sitting in the seat of Moses, and he put the apostles in that seat. But the apostles, like Moses, was not to exercise authority one over the other. It was a theocracy of the heart and of the mind. It had to be written on the hearts and minds of the people. It wasn't scattering the flocks. It was saying, come together. Sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ said to do. Take care of one another in pure religion by faith, hope, and charity. Thousands and thousands of Judeans accepted Jesus as their king and the apostles as the ministers of those kings and received the baptism of Jesus Christ, which got them put out of the system of social welfare set up by the Pharisees. You know, the the Jews, the synagogue was ten families. That's the way it was at that time. That's the way it was for thousands of years before. It was ten families. And they were networked together so that you, you didn't have to go all the way to the temple to pay your taxes. You paid your taxes through your ten family congregation and then that Levite minister took, whether he was a Pharisee or a Sadducee or in a scene, he would take a portion of that and give to the next minister that he had. And then he, and that one would take a portion of it and give to the next minister. And eventually this would go up to the temple. But most of what a local minister received, he could use to take care of the needy of his ten family congregation. Only a small portion would have to go up. And the only reason it went up there was not to buy fancy robes and, and accommodations for the priests but to come down to those congregations that didn't have enough. They had, you know, maybe extra hard times. And that was really important that the early Christians organized in such a fashion because they were going to have extra hard times. And they were not going to go to Caesar for their stimulus check. There's that article again. Go read that article. We need to have the Corbin of Christ. Or have the Corbin of Christ... We need to do it by free will offerings, by charity. This is what Paul is teaching. This is what Peter is teaching. He's saying that if we get involved in the covetous practices of the world, if we become members of their daily ministration, it won't be pure religion anymore. It 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 will be a covetous practice where you're getting benefits from men who exercise authority, taking by taking away from your neighbor. And you'll go back into the bondage. You'll become a human resource. You'll become merchandise. And you'll curse your children with loads of debt. Trillions of dollars worth of debt. He doesn't use the word trillions of dollars. But he knows that this is deceitful meats to eat of the benefits of rulers. He knows that because he read Proverbs. That's what it says in Proverbs. The dainties of rulers are deceitful meats. Because those rulers exercise authority one over the other. Paul says it's a snare and a trap. David says it's a snare and a trap. And we know it has always been a snare and a trap throughout history. Somehow or other, all the churches, they weren't all silent at the time, but 
their voices were maybe censored a little bit by the media. Yeah, I mean, censorship didn't start with Twitter, folks. It's it actually the censorship you have to worry about more than any other censorship is the censorship of your own heart, where you don't want to hear about the appetites of the masses that become accustomed to living at the expense of their neighbor. They have to stop doing that. And that's what we will see the Israelites doing in Exodus. They stop depending upon their neighbor. But they're blessed eventually. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.